Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Lily has some interesting news about dolphins that came to the rescue of a newborn baby whale and facts about how marine mammals hear underwater. She's also got a sound test she's going to play to see where we fall into the hearing range from 20 to 20,000 hertz. I'll be airing the first of a three-part interview with a National Geographic photographer. I got to meet Brent Sturton while on a film shoot in the UK. Quite an amazing man. 25 years of experience photographing environmental conflict around the world. I've got a few tips of my own to share on how to take photos with your smartphone as a person with no or low sight and some reflections to share on how to get the most out of your hearing when you're in nature. Come on, Lewis, let's go find Lily. Hey, Lily. Hi. So last episode, you talked to us about how animals see in the dark. I hear this time you're going to talk about how animals hear and think. Yeah, well, sound is fundamentally important for exploring our environment. So sound is also crucial if you're a whale or a dolphin and you live in the ocean, which often has poor visibility. The ability to hear long distance likely came into play when a pod of dolphins came to the rescue of a soon-to-be mother whale. Someone made a video that shows up a large pod of dolphins that came to the rescue of a large pregnant whale about to have her baby. So the dolphins encircled the whale to make sure no sharks could get close to the baby whale that was about to be born. The video offers proof that dolphins are capable of demonstrating empathy to mammals of a totally different species, which is a sign of true sentience or the ability to think and feel beyond simply responding to pre-programmed feelings such as hunger or fear. Dolphins are truly some of the smartest marine mammals in the world. There's no doubt about that. We have no idea if dolphins and whales communicate on a daily basis. But you know, Lily, there's no doubt visibility underwater is difficult, right? I mean, first of all, the earth is a sphere, so you can't see straight ahead for very long before it curves away. Mm -hmm. And light dissipates in the water, and the water is not always clear. It's normal for these mammals to depend on the hearing so much underwater. It's just extraordinary that we don't understand that as sighted people who, who don't live underwater. Well, water is far better for transmitting sounds than it is at conveying light. So no wonder marine mammals have developed their sense of hearing like way more than humans. You oh, know? yeah. Oh, yeah. Humans have evolved to depend really heavily on sight as a primary sensory input. So a large part of our brain is dedicated to processing visual information. So naturally, you know, we're better at interpreting images than sounds. Actually, the average human can only detect sounds that fall between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz. A whale can go down to one hertz, like one frequency per second. That's how low some whales can talk. Yeah. If you want to hear the, like, the different ranges of sound, uh, we can listen to this link that plays all the frequencies in the audible human range and, you know, how well your ears measure up. Okay, let's try it. What's that noise? This is this. This is this. Oh, that's it. It's at 26 hertz, 27 hertz. It's just going up. Oh, I can hear that. Yeah. It's very low, yeah. (laughs) What's it at now? 45. 45 hertz. 52. 60. 80. (laughs) They're just going up faster. It's too loud. Turn it down. Turn it down. Turn the volume down. It's not, it's not too loud. No. Oh. One, 129. One, okay. It's getting higher. 150. 
climbing. 240. 240, yeah. And it started at 20. Yeah. Yeah. It started at zero, actually. No, it didn't. Tell me when you can stop hearing it. Oh, I can hear that fine. It's getting louder. Towards me. Oh, man. Make it stop. Make it stop. Stop. <laughs> 780. 780 hertz? Yeah. A thousand. That's only a thousand. Yeah. 1,200, 1,300, 1,400. Okay. 1,900. 2020, 2030, 24. Oh my god. 3,000. Oh, I can hear that fine. Yeah. Still hearing it. What's it at now? 5,000 and 6,000. Is that 6,000? It's uh, 7,000 now. Oh. Hang on. I'm still hearing it. What is it? 9,000. I lost it. 100,000? I'm still there. You're at 10,000. Oh, yeah, sorry. 10,000, 12,000, 13,000? You can hear that? Yeah. 15,000. That's when I lost it. Well, that's pretty good, Lily. Uh-huh. Yeah, you got young ears. Clearly. You only <laughs> you stopped at 10. I know, I know. That's pretty impressive. Many sounds that whales and dolphins make are out of hearing range. Take an echolocation clicks as an example, right? These signals are short in duration and broadband in nature, meaning they span a large frequency of range. Mm-hmm. While the frequency's range of echolocation click varies by species... Many clicks are ultrasonic and well above 20 kilohertz. So that's our, that's our upper limit, 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. Which neither of us got to, by the way. No, I don't think I was close. You got 15. Yeah. 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 Meaning, you know, we can't hear them. What about blue whales? Yeah. We can't hear them either. They're the loudest animals on the planet. Really? Yeah. But they vocalize in the infrasonic frequency range, too low for humans to hear. But the cool thing about blue whales is that recorders can pick them up hundreds of miles away from where the animal is vocalizing. I heard they can even like transmit all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. It absolutely blows my mind how far they can communicate underwater with their... <laughs> there are researchers looking for help to identify sounds. So in Southwest Acoustics Ecology Lab is always looking for help. They collect a ton of data every year and with big data... There are often big challenges. They need volunteers to help them identify sounds. The researchers are putting together a Zooniverse, which is a citizen science project called Ocean's Voices. They need beta testers for this project. They ask users to listen to a sound and identify if there is ship noise or humpback whale calls in the sound clip. Cool. The sounds are audible to humans. So if you think you can tell the difference between humpback whales and vessel noise... Maybe think about volunteering. To learn more about the Ocean Voices Project, visit www.zooniverse.org. How do you spell Zooniverse? Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E dot org. Thanks, Lily. We've got Brent Sturton online. He's a, a National Geographic Explorer. He's been working with the National Geographic since 2007 as a photographer. He is an ambassador for Canon Camera Company and a bunch of other companies that he works with. And I got to know Brent. I got to meet Brent. At a, we recorded something we can't really talk about because we have a 
uh, an embargo in place for this technology that we were able to um, explore with Canon. And that's about as much as we can say about that. But we can certainly talk about a bunch of other things. And and uh, I was hoping Brent could talk to us today about what it's like to be an environmental photographer traveling the world. What, you know, the things he sees, how he takes his pictures, how he deals with some of the ch- more challenging things he sees. And then his own uh, uh, experience with blind people around the world and his, some of his blind friends and experience as well. Brent, welcome to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, my friend. Oh, thank you very much, Lawrence. Um, it's nice to be on. Thank you for having me. Oh, man, uh, I've been looking forward to this all month, you know, since uh, since we met in early October. Brent, why don't you talk to us a little bit about how you got into photography? Like, what drew you to this? You know, I'm South African, yeah. And uh, at the time, like in the in the 80s, um, we were involved in a number of wars. So we had conscription in our country, you know. We had a war in Mozambique. We had a large war in Angola. And we were required to spend some time in the army, et cetera. And for me, uh, during that time, um, I learned to use a camera. Um, some of my work involved taking photographs. Um, so, yeah, that's that was my first experience, really. You know, I became so interested in it that I went from wanting to be a doctor to um, to deciding to be a journalist instead. So, I, uh, you know, when I left the army, um, I went to journalism school. And then I was writing. I was writing for Reuters and a few other people. And they said to me, listen, we, we're happy with what you're writing, but, but you need to find a photographer to work with. You know, we want to, you know, and I couldn't find anyone. I was looking at, living at the coast in South Africa where there was a great deal of factional violence in the Zulu kingdom. Um, so the ANC and the Encarta, the two main political parties in those regions, would fight. You know, and there would be deadly fights on a nightly basis. And every day there would be bodies in the streets. So... I covered a lot of that factional violence. So wow. um, I couldn't find a photographer to work with who wanted to come with me to do that. Um, so I bought a secondhand Canon A1 camera and uh, yeah, read the manual and been uh, pretty lucky ever since. But that was a great camera back in the 80s, right? It, I mean, it was. Yeah. Squeaky shutter and all that. You know, we all think about South Africa and, and Nelson Mandela and, and, and apartheid and and you were there in the, you know, just, you saw the birth of, 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 you know, the end of apartheid and the birth of the whole political system with the parties, you know, finally being able to rule themselves and right in the middle of it all. Holy miracle. Yeah, no, it was a fascinating time. That's for sure. You know, um, and definitely learning as we go, you know. So fortunately, um, Reuters liked what I was doing. And then I actually got a contact with a French agency called Gamma Liaison. And so I stopped at Reuters and I started traveling across Africa. So I was able to photograph some of the fall of the of what was then Zaire, um, the ousting of Mobutu. Um, I did the famines in Somalia. I did, um, you know, what was going on in a number of places across the continent. And I basically spent the next five years photographing African conflicts, you know. So um, it was an interesting wow. time. Did you at some point say enough with conflicts and, and, and make a career path change? I mean, I know you're still a photographer, but you're now well regarded as an environmental photographer. I would never have called myself a war photographer. I think people use that term too easily. I am a photographer who works in places where there is conflict. Um, and I do that at least three, four times a year. So 
Um, I'm much more interested in cause and effect. You know, why do these things happen, and what what is the what is the effect of this instability? I worked as a conventional photojournalist till about 2007, and then in 2007, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, working for Newsweek, and we were covering uh, some of the violence in the country um, in the Kivus, in the eastern part of the country. And then they asked me to go and spend time with a group of conservation rangers. Um, and this was in Virunga National Park, which is Africa's first national park, the second created in the world after Yellowstone. And these guys, 50 of them had just come back from South Africa where they had received elite training to deal with the, the issues in the park. And at the time, there were 17 different armed groups inside the park, a rebel army as well as the Congolese army, and this is all happening in a game park just slightly larger than Israel. Wow. So quite fascinating. You know, and then Lawrence, the the you know, the second day that I was there, we got news that um, a group of very rare, highly endangered mountain gorillas had been killed. Wow. At the time, there were less than 350 of these guys in the world. So um you know, I remember that it was misty and raining, and um, so we trekked off for about four hours into the mountain, and we got to this site, and we found these the bodies of these gorillas. Um, you know, and um, it was it was a strange thing for me because I'd been photographing violence in DRC for some time, in quite intense you know scenarios. You know, um, whatever you can do to a human being that's bad has been done in that place. So anyway, I photographed this and, um, you know, the very next morning we trekked back into this place, um, you know, and we had to be quick because it's, it's a, you know, there's a lot of rebels running around there. And um, anyway, we found the silverback. The top male. Yeah, the guy who had been trying to defend his family, you know. So oh. all in all, um, nine, nine mountain gorillas had died. Okay, one baby, one baby survived. So I photographed the evacuation of these gorillas, and uh, there's a there's a picture where this huge silverback, which is about you know he's about 400, 400 pounds, yeah, and he's being carried out on a stretcher on the on the shoulders of about thirty guys, and so I managed to make what was a memorable picture of the scene, and then I went back to the next story, you know, um, yeah. And then, um, you know, a week later or so, Newsweek published these pictures, and then there was there was a global outcry. And I think that part of that was because, you know, people are used to humans fighting, and we've just come to accept that that's the way the world works. But there is innocence associated with animals. And, um, you know, the idea that, that we should be responsible for them, you know? Um, yeah. Anyway, so we got an unprecedented reaction to this set of pictures, and uh, Geographic called me, National Geographic called me. In fact, a guy called Nick Nichols, who I, I would have regarded as the top wildlife guy in the world at the time. Um, I still think he's he's the number one guy, although he's retired now. But Nick, um, yeah, he, uh, he called me and he said, listen, we'd like you to do a full story on this. Can you do an investigation for us? Uh, yeah, we investigated what had happened and we found out, you know, that in fact there was a corrupt warden who was in charge of the southern sector of the park who was working with a charcoal mafia. And the only way you get charcoal in that region is you cut down the hardwood trees and you bake the charcoal. And the only hardwood trees were in the gorilla sector in a protected part of, of the area. Oh, um, so, yeah, these charcoal guys threatened the rangers 
Um, and they, uh, the Rangers didn't stop trying to stop them doing this. So they killed the guerrillas as a means of intimidation. You, you uncovered all this. Myself and a journalist, and uh, you know, we reported on it. Yeah. But the main investigation was done by a couple of Congolese lawyers, some investigative guys. You know, I wouldn't take credit for doing this, but I would say that we broke the story. Yeah, you guys documented yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. So that was my introduction to the fact that um, things that are happening in the environment are not happening in isolation from humans. They're happening as a result of humans most of the time, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, conflicts take in more than human um, issues. They they affect the environment dramatically, and they affect animals. And um, when I saw the reaction that people had had to this set of pictures, um, it really woke me up to the fact that there might be another way to talk about conflict. And that began my work um, how humankind constantly intersects and interacts with the environment and what the consequences are. And it's not just always conflict, too. It's sometimes it's just greed, right? And in the case of the rhinoceros, tell, tell us that story, because you've taken some epic pictures of rhinoceros as well. Yeah, we do a lot of stuff. Um, definitely a lot of stuff on the illegal wildlife trade. So, you know, I looked at the trade on, on rhino horn, um, you know, that led me to China and to Vietnam. Just looking at how, you know, ancient Asian medicine, um, you know, basically like medical texts from 5,000 years ago are still very much in play today. And um, unfortunately, um, you've got a population that's huge um, and uh, there's just not enough of that stuff to go around. Secondly, um, so much of that industry today is is um, is uh, it's driven by profit. So I mean, I spoke to pangolin uh, scale dealers, to um, rhino horn people, to guys who deal in tiger bone, all sorts of stuff. And um, you know, the deal is with so much of this a- ancient uh, Asian medicine is that there's always hundreds of alternatives, and most of those are plant based. But the guys dispensing this stuff can't charge very much for plant-based stuff. So they push the horn. They push the illegal product. Mm. And um, people believe it, you know. So it's the power of placebos, in a sense, that's going on here. Oh, yeah. you know? well, they say that's 30% of the healing is just believing that you're going to get better, right? But, yeah, yeah, 100%. But, but there's people but the, just taking advantage of that and, and, and animals... Die as a consequence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's also, you know, imagine the scenario. So yeah, you are a poor villager. Your child gets cancer, and some guy who's a complete bullshitter comes out and says, "Hey, listen, you know, if you buy rhino horn, it'll cure your kid." Wow. So yeah. you know, I mean, at the time that I did the last rhino story, I think 2016, um, it was around about ten thousand dollars for a hundred grams. Yeah. So a full full grown like rhino horn, six to eight kilos, three hundred and sixty, three hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Wow, for that? one horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so it's smart. big business, yeah. yeah. It's big it's not it's not a small business. Um and there's a lot of people vested in maintaining the status quo. Serious cash, right? It's all cash too, I guess. Oh, right? it's, it's all that, man, you know. Yeah. Um and then guys get pretty nationalistic, you know, like Xi Ping is pretty serious about traditional medicine in China. Yeah. There is a certain nationalism that exists around these beliefs as well. 
and they, they don't like being told what to do by Western people. They, they see it as cultural warfare, right? Where you're trying to take away yeah. their culture. There is some of that, but there's yeah. also youth, youth movements in these countries that do care about animals and don't subscribe to these ideas. The more enlightened people. I, I think about, you know, shark fins, right? And in our sure. own Rob Stewart, you know, who made that beautiful documentary about the shark fin industry around the world and, and changed change a lot of government yeah, yeah. Uh, laws around the export and harvest of, of shark fins. Sure. And and uh, one man, one young man in his early 20s, right? Just loved scuba diving, loved swimming with sharks and just chased down the story, you know, just a, a, a reporter with a camera like you. Look, sometimes that's what it takes, you know, that's all it takes. You know, due to the fact that it's become harder and harder for fishermen to make a living around the world, those kinds of industries persist because there's money to be made. So when, you, when you're in places like Somalia, parts of uh, Indonesia, or you know, anywhere where there's a, a lot of active shark fishing, a lot of that's still driven by poverty. You know? It's still driven by the fact that guys can't catch the number of fish that they used to. Um, so they supplement with these illegal industries. To feed their families, to feed their communities. When you're dealing with poverty, uh, you do what you have to do to feed your family. And but, nature suffers, know, right? The thing with this stuff, Lawrence, is it, it, it has global repercussions, you know. Yeah. So yeah. My, my response to COVID was to go and look at the bushmeat industry. What people need to understand is that meat that is hunted um, in Africa or in Asia, etc., um, most often it's not consumed where it's, eat, where it's hunted. It, really? it moves up a value chain. So hunter, you know, he'll be in... Um, his mission is to get it to the nearest city because by the time he gets it to the city, it will have quadrupled in price. Mm. Okay, so it's it's a value proposition. Um, you wow. know, inf- infrastructure around the world has also really changed. There's far more roads than there ever used to be. There's cheaper motorbikes, cheaper cars available to people. The ability to move goods has improved dramatically, especially in Africa. Wow. It's in the last 15 to 20 years. Yeah. But the big problem is that many of these animals carry disease. What was interesting about COVID is that we, we really seem to deal with the, with the effect of COVID. We developed vaccines. We, we did all that sort of stuff. But we have not stopped or really even investigated the root cause, which lies within pathogens locked in certain animals. And the, it's the ability of those pathogens to move from one species to another until they're able to jump to a human. Um, and bushmeat is, the, you know, for me, the number one means by which that happens. Just dealing with the carcasses and dealing with the uh, the animals, you can, you know, the viruses can still be living. I've heard that as much as 55% of the viruses that are in circulation amongst humans today come from animals. It may even be higher than that. But, yeah. you know, what's interesting is that a lot of the new diseases that we're seeing come are, are coming out of areas where previously there were no humans. Right. Um you know, so our ability to push deeper into areas to, you know, to access things, parts of forest that, that had never seen humans before is is laying open a certain vulnerability. Um, and I'm concerned about that. I mean, my right now I'm gearing up to do a large story on planetary health. Um, and this story is um, is trying to look at how these kind of mechanisms work. I'm hoping to be able to, to form a clearer picture of that. I always think about, you know, the technology evolved and what it's meant for, you know, the fisheries around the world, freshwater and saltwater. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, it used to be we, we had very limited technology 
and you know the idea of being able to wipe out a, a, a species or a fish stock was beyond our concept it was it was something we never thought we could ever do or even thought about yeah. doing it's just something we didn't know that we you know didn't know and and now it's it's involved with everything we do right everything we we have to technology to really impact and hammer yeah, and yeah. we we have to think about these things Taking pictures with a smartphone or digital camera outside isn't that hard. The main thing you got to remember, and maybe I'm just showing my age here, is that you're not going to run out of film. So what I do is I like to make sure my uh, subject is always facing into the sun. You don't want the sun behind them because then everything that you're looking at is going to be in the shadow and the sun is going to make everything seem really dark. So you want to have the sun behind you or the source of light behind you and lighting up your subject that you're going to be photographing. That's the first thing. The other thing is you want to get your camera down on the same level as your subject. You don't want to be looking down. You want to be looking up or at least have your subject at the same level as your camera. So if they're holding something or if they're pointing at something, that's what you want the camera level to be at. Not always looking down. So if you're holding it up to your face, the camera's always sort of looking down. If you want, just get down on your knees and hold the camera about chest level. I hold it in both hands and then I bracket my photography. I'll take a picture and move it up just a degree or two. Do it again, move it up a degree or two, take another picture and then do it down as well. So that way I'm making sure that I'm not cutting off the top of the head or the, the whatever they're holding in their hands. You know, I'm bracketing the subject by moving the camera up and down and taking pictures. I'll do the same thing left and right. And then I'll get someone to look at my pictures and pick out the best one, the one that has the subject right in the center of the frame. All the rest, well, you just hit delete. It's possible to take good pictures of your friends and your family as a blind person. Just take lots of them. When I'm outside in the outdoors, my hearing expands. And I don't know how to explain that. And I don't know what the science is with all that. But it happens, you know. And I, I think what it is, is you get used to hearing inside rooms and inside noisy spaces and walking alongside noisy roads and spaces where your hearing just sort of dampens down. It shrinks it, it goes into sort of a conservation mode where it protects itself. And it means you're hearing less. And when you're in the outdoors, when you're in nature, and there's no noise, very little noise, your hearing expands. It opens up like, like a pupil. It just expands and lets in more sound. So by the end of a day of spending time in nature, where there's a lot of silence, you can hear things a lot further away. Just be careful though, if you go to chop a piece of wood at the end of the day to put on the fire, that's gonna sound really loud. Or a door banging or a boat running into a dock. Little bangs and bumps that you normally wouldn't notice all of a sudden seem loud. Or when you go inside, you'll feel like you're in a very small, small cave because the sound is just bouncing back off the walls and ceiling and floor and everything around you. And it's coming back, it's just so loud and so fast, you feel like it's everything's really close, but it's worth it. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com 
to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions at feedback at ami.ca. Thanks to Mark Affalo. He's our technical producer. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.